If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to another episode of Campfire Stories, a segment where we feature interview discussions with writers, filmmakers, witnesses, experts, and everyone in in between. We're here to discuss their lives, their work, and more importantly, the stories they tell of all things uncanny. Today, Chris and I are super excited to introduce to you Richard Haddam writer of uh, Mothman Prophecies, currently writing for Titans. Richard, what else have you been on? Oh my God, uh, so many shows. The ones you've uh, you've probably heard of are Supernatural, uh, Grimm, Witches of East End. But uh, it's it's been almost a different show every year for the past fifteen years. In fact, Titans is the first show that that has lasted long enough, uh, and I've lasted on it long enough to uh, do multiple years. We're uh, we're in the middle. Well, we're we're sort of paused in the middle of producing season three. Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us today. I know. Uh, so you've been Chris. He Richard's been on quite a few episodes of. Uh, a variety of your podcasts, correct? Mike White and I used to have a podcast called The Kolchak Tapes, and I want to say, Richard, you just were singing our praises on Twitter, and uh, I think Mike and I reached out to you, and we were like, hey, do you want to be on an episode? Um, and you took us up on the offer, and then we kind of, you know, the first time we talked to you, uh, we clearly the three of us got along very well, and uh, the three of us kind of struck up, you know, we all, we've struck up a friendship, Richard and I have. Um, and so, uh, you know, Richard has been, uh, Richard's been on my podcast, the culture cast a couple times. And I know that Richard has a innate interest in these kinds of things. Him and I have spoken about that, um, kind of privately several times. So I figured there's no better place to get Richard to talk about stuff that interests him than a podcast where we're talking about true crime and paranormal stuff. So that's, well, that was, that was the, like the weirdest thing about living in the world that we live in now. I, I remember I was actually like at my doctor's office and it was like leaving an appointment and trying to get a podcast going, uh, like trying to find the, the podcast that I was listening to. And then whatever app I had flashed up, oh, here's some other podcasts you might be interested in. 
And for some reason, I actually sort of scrolled through and immediately came upon the Kolshak tapes. And I'm like, what? This is impossible. There cannot be a podcast devoted to the show that basically is the cornerstone of my life. <laughs> so, so I'm like, well, this is crazy. So then I, you know, clicked on it and started listening to it. And I'm like, well, this is amazing. Like, how is it possible that anyone else in the world could be that interested in a show and a character that I have been interested in since I was eight years old, since the show was originally on? So then I went nuts. And like you said, I, I sort of, you know, I called it out on Twitter because then I found you guys on Twitter. And then I swear to God, I think it was within a month I was on the show. Something like it was real quick. Um, yeah. You know, but, you know, hey, it, it, it was clearly a. Uh you know, fortuitous event because, you know, uh, we're here now. So, you know, it's, uh, yeah. it's kind of, it's kind of weird how that works. Yeah. You know, um, you know, obviously the Kolchak tapes is kind of over now because we, we finished the show and we've transitioned onto other projects, but, uh, you know, the, the friendship with Richard has not, uh, is not going away anytime soon. So much so <laughs> that, um, I've, uh, I went, um, I guess it was about a month and a half ago. My wife and I went to the Sally house in uh in kansas and um i tried to get richard to to come with me but richard uh obviously lives in la so that's a big time commitment to fly all the way to the midwest (laughs) but the first thing that i did when i walked into the sally house was facetime richard um so you know i know which was totally weird i mean getting the virtual tour of the sally house it's one of those things where the house itself you know, I mean, it doesn't look like the haunted mansion from Disneyland. Right. Like if if it did not have the reputation for being haunted, it would be the dullest house you've ever seen. But the fact that it's like, oh, this is one of the most haunted houses in America, if not the world. And I know people who have had weird experiences in it. It made every second of that virtual tour terrifying yeah that was uh <laughs> that was pretty great that was that because you're just expecting like at any moment you're just like wait did that move wait what's happening oh my god who's gonna scream it was like like a little clip from paranormal activity <laughs> you're just watching a camera move through a house and you're like yeah but something something's about to happen I'm <laughs> yeah the uh the, the sally house is um you know i don't know if it's something we're ever going to talk about on the podcast because I would I would almost defer to the Astonishing Legends podcast on it because mm-hmm. they did such an in-depth podcast on it that oh, yeah. trying to compete with their podcast on it might be a, a fool's errand but um you know the the Sally House is just one of those places that yeah it is it is it's a wild place I mean we didn't have anything you know not like we that stuff happened while we were there but it wasn't anything that was like you know the EVP that the Astonishing Legends podcast captured, but yeah, Richard, um, Richard and I have 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 struck up a friendship. I think we've been friends what for like um, over a year now, two years. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. May- God, when was the first? A while. Maybe ago. it's getting close to two years, but it, but it is. I I would say, Chris, you you might be my best friend I've never met. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, I uh. You know, and that's the thing, like, I think, like you mentioned, with technology, I mean, that's a that's a reality. You know, um, I was in L.A. last two summers ago, and I, I timing just oh, right. escaped. Timing escaped us. So it was two years ago, because... Um, right, I remember you were out here, and I was like, okay, well, dude, let's meet up for a drink. And, and then you were, but you were, like, all over the place. You were in Nevada. Yeah. And then you were, de- like, you were not just in L.A., you were in the 
in the region. Yeah, I was in L.A. for a little bit um, visiting my old co-host for my podcast, but, um, you know, we won't talk about him. Uh, <laughs> So, so Richard, I'm I'm curious because this is the first time that we're going to be talking kind of on the record about this. Um, on the record. On the record. <laughs> um, growing up, for me, my interest in the paranormal and the supernatural was kind of instilled within me growing up. Was that the same for you? Uh, yeah, it was. Um, I, uh, from a very young age, I've tried to figure this out, and I, as far as I can tell. The the first scary thing I remember seeing that that sort of translated into oh that's a ghost story was on uh, the Wonderful World of Disney, which was that show that used to be on Sunday nights. This is probably before your time. This is going back to like the seventies, and it must have been around Halloween. They showed The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. The animated one mm-hmm. with, you know, Ichabod Crane and the whole thing and the Headless Horseman. I have that on and, VHS in my closet right yeah. now. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 fairly well known. People have a memory. Like I mentioned, it, you, you're probably sort of picturing Ichabod Crane with the big nose and, mm-hmm. you know, the whole thing. So I saw that and I don't know why, but I remember being completely galvanized by it. There, there's probably throughout my life, you know, maybe five or six things that I remember seeing and having a physical reaction to and feeling like this has changed things for me. I'm not the same person I used to be. Uh, that was the first one. And I became obsessed with the with the Headless Horseman, but also with Ichabod Crane, this really scared guy who was being pursued by the scary thing. And it's funny when you think about the connection between that and the Night Stalker, but, you know, it's <laughs> it, it's definitely there. Anyway, that was the first thing. Um, I've never – so I didn't see a ghost. I didn't, you know, see a UFO, nothing like that. But something about seeing fear portrayed or someone trying to deal with their fear and transcend it or beat it or uh, uh, somehow triumph over it, that really galvanized me. And then as I've become an adult uh, and and had 20 years of therapy, I'm beginning to understand why. There you go. The sleepy, that particular uh, version of Sleepy Hollow is one that I often watched as a kid. And yeah, there's something really inherently, you know, unsettling about it. And it's, it's also super rich in color and in atmosphere. I mean, all throughout. I, I remember... I'll, it was a weird thing as a, as a kid. I remember watching a lot of movies and animated movies in particular where there would be scenes that featured just like feasts or, you know, long tables full of food. And there is a scene like that in this movie. And I remember that that food used to look so good and everything like inside was really warm until the sort of because isn't there a bully character in that it's it's almost a uh, uh beauty and the beast sort sort of like brawn you know yep no there totally is there's the guy well because also ichabod crane is in love with the girl katrina Van Tassel, right. but there's that guy brom bones who tells the story that really yeah. gets him scared it sort of it sort of gets him worked up like oh you know, the woods that I rode through on the way to this party seemed fine, but now you've just told me they're haunted, and now I've got to go back through them when I leave tonight. 
Yeah, and it was always that sort of juxtaposition of like right up before then where everything's like all the, all the, you know, kind of, I guess it's meat or ale or whatever they're drinking always looks so, it almost looks like butterscotch, like kind of cream soda-y, where it always just, everything looks so good and everything's warm and comfortable and then that character kind of comes in and, and just like you said, just peppers that feeling of, of fear and now Ichabod has to deal with it in that yeah, I, I I totally get what you're talking about on like an emotional level. And it's funny because it connects to another thing that I probably saw the next year, but it was uh it was the musical Scrooge. Uh, you know, a okay. Christmas carol. Yeah. It was the one with Albert Finney and yep. and it had that same feeling where there were there were scenes that were really scary. I mean stuff that as a little kid scared me to death, mm-hmm. but right up against and, and in the middle of this Christmas season that was like really beautiful and warm and filled with food and yeah. and and the the alternating between that and then the icy cold dark ghost story that was laid over it there was something very compelling about that juxtaposition. One uh, when I was a kid, my my favorites. Um... Christmas car- carols were were the Muppets and then the Mickey Christmas Carol. And while Muppets had its own its fair share of like, you know, creepy visuals and, and things like that, it's still the Muppets, so it didn't really, you know, creep me out as much as the Mickey one did because the Mickey one gets really serious and scary with the Ghost of Christmas Future who, I mean, there is a scene where it's Mickey is just standing over a grave, an open grave, that I think it's Bluto is the is the ghost of Christmas future and is like smoking a cigar and all of the smoke comes like pouring out of the hood and he puts his hood down, and is laughing maniacally and pointing at this open grave that's obviously for or not for Mickey, for a uh, 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 Scrooge McDuck and. It's just, it's unsettling. It's, especially as a kid. And I mean, I, I, there's that one line in, in that, uh, in whichever Christmas song it is about like telling ghost stories over an open fire, like as a tradition in the Christmas time. And I wish that that was something that we still like, you know, we still adhered to and sort of built up all, any, any ounce of, you know, scariness in Christmas has pretty much just been boiled down into varying Christmas carols, but... I know. I feel the same way. I feel that that there is something really compelling about both things happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it always it always made sense to me that, that you would... That on Christmas Eve, you would tell ghost stories, but, but sort of in the context of this warmer, more life-affirming time, you sort of... You sort of have to you, you sort of have to get that balance. I've I've always loved that the 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 Christmas Eve ghost story mm-hmm. and and other uh, I think it is something that was part of a culture that isn't anymore. There's a writer uh, by the name a Canadian writer uh, Robertson Davies. Do you guys know this guy? Uh, the name sounds familiar, but I can't say that I am familiar. He's with from it. he's from uh, middle of uh, the last century. He's not alive anymore, but. Gotcha. Um, but he was um, he was a college professor, a man of letters, and he wrote novels, and uh, some of which are really fantastic. Uh, but he um, but at the university where he taught, there was a Christmas celebration. They, it was called Gaudy Night, 
and and the hallmark event of the gaudy night was was the the reading of a ghost story that he had written and he would get up and he would read this ghost story and and again it's 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 something that I'd never heard of this the particular kind of celebration I don't know mm-hmm. if it's a Canadian thing but but again I, I I thought oh that's so great you know that that you know you have this big feast and then you tell the scary story I think that telling scary stories in my opinion is like you know people always look down on it and think is something that only like children should be doing at like slumber parties but I mean, a good scary story can enthrall you in a way that like no other story can. Yeah, and it's and it's not just like like for me, it's not you know the story of the hook man, you know, mm-hmm. when the hook was on the door handle the next morning. That's a gotcha story. As our that's like as, an urban legend. <laughs> as friend of the podcast Shelley Tucker would say, that's a slumber party. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like the ones. I mean, for me, the the ghost story that fills you with wonder uh, is maybe not even as much terror as wonder. Like, wow, could that have really happened? Could, you know, can that you stuff know, happen? There's an episode, uh, it's a later episode, I think, maybe season six um, of The X-Files, uh, and it's Christmas episode where Mulder and Scully are investigating this house that is supposedly haunted by these, you know, this couple that, that lived there and maybe, you know, one of them murdered the other one. And it, it does function like that, that traditional kind of Christmas scary story where it's not, you know, there's some jarring stuff, you know, it's, it's X-Files, sure. But that feeling of wonder, Richard, that you were talking about, there is that kind of whimsical, you know, fairy tale-ish feeling to it. And yeah. I think that, that as far as Christmas goes, you know, the spirit of Christmas and being happy for what we have and appreciating our family members has obviously and family and friends have obvi- has obviously gone by the wayside in, in, you know, recent years. And it's all focused on fake happiness and commercialism <laughs> um but these stories Come i think on, in this Charlie time Brown. yeah <laughs> this uh the these stories i think are they do represent sort of that initial that that actual feeling and spirit of christmas where it's like yeah these here's something that kind of grounds you like here's maybe a cautionary tale or because a lot of scary stories can serve as cautionary tales and you know well, it, you know, I was a kid. I never went to church. My family was not, Same. they were, you know, that just was not part of our lives growing up. And, um, and yet clearly there was something inside me that was looking for, uh, something, something transcendent, something mm-hmm. that wasn't just the, the actual physical details of my everyday life. And, and so I found my way to it through other things, through ghost stories, mm-hmm. or eventually through, you know, when I started watching In Search Of with Leonard right. Nimoy, you know, <laughs> then it was, then it was, oh, there might be something out there called Bigfoot, there might be something out there called the Loch Ness Monster, mm-hmm. or, or UFOs, or whatever it was that, that allowed me to go, okay, there is something else, it's not just this, this, you know, painful, lonely existence 
uh, of of little Richie Haddam in the second grade being <laughs> depressed all the time. You know, there there might be something else. And if I and if I you know sort of turn my mind toward that, it's it's like an escape hatch from the grim reality of whatever it is I'm living through. And I know that sounds pretty dramatic when I'm talking about the way I was when I was seven or eight, but that is how I was and that is what I felt. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that that's something that I think, you know, is still a stigma for people in a time now that we live in where people are very upfront, for the most part, pretty upfront about mental health and seeking therapy and things like that, much more so than they were in the 70s, 80s, 90s, obviously. And and, you know, even still, though, there's still a stigma when you, you know, talking about children having these sort of feelings because everybody wants to delude themselves and say the children have no problems and, you know, they should just be, you know, they're happy, little, innocent. But no, that's not true. We all, we absorb things. We're sponges when we're children. All we do is absorb information and feelings. Like, that's, that's all you're doing as a child. So yeah, being overwhelmed and not having the you know the 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 cognitive capacity to reason, you know, why you're seeing scary things on the news or why your parents are fighting or why, you know, this kid at school's bullying you or even, you know, why you just feel like shit and you don't know why. There might not be a reason and you just do. And so yeah, these these stories are great ways to kind of escape and and identify with something that's greater than yourself. Well, when you're a kid, it's even worse because you mm-hmm. don't you don't have any of the acquired sort of uh, uh, psychic defenses. You you haven't right. been you have alive no long. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't have coping skills. You you don't have. You're not in control of any aspect of your life. There's so no ration. Yeah, you're really you're really kind of at the mercy of whatever you know uh, stew you're you're stewing. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And, and, you know, that's just where you are. And, and, you, and then the coping mechanisms you do come up with sometimes are a little, are, are a little crazy, you know. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I think that's where I went. I think I carried a lot of fear inside me about my personal relationships. Again, I'm talking about when I was a very little child mm-hmm. about the safety, you know, you know, was I safe in my family? Was was I truly supported? Did I have emotional support? It, it, clearly, I, I did not have the foundation that I would have wanted to have mm-hmm. or these existential, and they were literally existential fears. I didn't know that at the time, but I look back and I'm like, oh yeah, I was... 
these were not fears of, oh, I'm afraid of the house getting robbed. This was like the matrix of my life is not secure. And, and, and so I carried it with me all the time. And it was fear that I couldn't point and say, oh, I'm worried about that person or that thing. And once that's out of the picture, I'm okay. It was just always there. I was in it. And, and I think then emotionally I could, uh, you know, look at these ghost stories and things like that. And, and that's, that's the stuff I started to chew on because Mm -hmm. that related to it in, in some way. And then, and then, uh, when I got a little older, when I was like eight years old and the night stalker entered my life. Now that was a show about Jack, not, not, uh, Richard Ramirez. <laughs> when Richard yeah, Ramirez yeah, yes. entered yeah, my house. Richard Ramirez. That was scary too, but not the same. No, no. Jack <laughs> would, was, you know, A, he was an adult. B, he was dealing with things that were, that there was never a question as to whether they were real. It wasn't, there was no Mulder Scully. It was, mm-hmm. it was real. And he was the only one who knew it was real. And then he had to face it and then he had to beat it. So in, in, in terms of a, a, a psychological dynamic, Kolchak was exactly representing everything I felt like I was going through in my life. I was alone. No one believed me. I was afraid. And I had to figure out how to deal with it. And no one was going to help me. And, and even after it was over, it was an entirely interior drama. Mm-hmm. No one shared it with him. There were no partners and, and no one was on his side. And so that was, again, looking back, very clearly why that show was so important to me. Right. I mean, that, that's fantastic. And, and similarly, Richard, I, you know, I'm, I'm a little younger than you are. So when I was a kid, um, you know, I was an only child and I was a single parent household. Um, so I spent a lot of time by myself, uh, which, you know, I, I over, you know, for the most part was totally fine with. I, and I'm, I'm a generally sort of private person. I have no problem finding ways to occupy my time by myself. I, I do, you know, enjoy that. But, um, there was a show on when I was a kid and it was on Disney and it was called So Weird. And it's it's a show that I found that like is not as common and a lot of people don't remember it, but the people who do remember it are they there are like me who are just enthralled and, and it played a large part in their life. But essentially that show was about a pre you know, like a I think thirteen year old girl named Fiona, Fee for short, who traveled around with her brother and her mom, Mackenzie Phillips, who was a um Yes, exactly. And she in the show plays a, you know, a a rock star, you know, just a a musician. And they travel around on their tour bus all over the country. And um, each state, you know, each place they go to fee encounters some sort of paranormal or, you know, unexplained sort of phenomenon happening, um, be it stuff based on true stuff. Like the first episode, I think, is about this... uh, um, boat that overturned in the Chicago River and a whole bunch of people drowned. Um, and then there's stuff that's more fantastical or more lore-based, like fairies and, and stuff like that. But she also, her whole thing, because this was like probably 1999, maybe 2000, um, she had her own website where she chronicled all of this stuff and all of her findings. So it's sort of like how Scully at the end of the early episodes of X-Files would kind of file away her, 
her report to her case files and you would hear the VO. Man, they there dropped that real that. quick on the show, didn't they? Oh, yeah, didn't they? Like, <laughs> one like, season, season after one. that, they're like, nah. <laughs> season one and then nothing. Right. So there so there was that, and I, I was about, you know, I was maybe a couple of years younger than Fee when I was watching the show. And I had always been interested in weird stuff that, like, you know, it, I just was. My nana had introduced me to Universal monster movies at a young age. I loved, like, Indiana Jones Temple of Doom when I was a kid. I liked watching, you know, Star Trek Next Generation. I remember watching Species a lot as a kid, which is not a kid's movie. (laughs) (laughs) For so many reasons. (laughs) I, you know... I watched episodes of Twilight Zone late at night on Sci-Fi. I watched episode, edited episodes of Tales from the Crypt late at night on Sci-Fi. So all of that stuff was always interesting to me. I, I don't know why specifically, but I just know that I was pretty much always interested in things that were a little creepy. But being a kid in, you know, Midwest Ohio... Small town, there's not a lot of kids that kind of share those interests. At least there wasn't then in the 90s. Now maybe it's different. And obviously, as an adult, 30 years old, I have plenty of friends who are interested in this stuff. And this stuff is widely culturally, you know, appreciated now. So, but as a kid, I didn't have that. I didn't have, like, even the friends that I did have, I had one friend that was also interested in in, in things like that. And we would just, like keep notes of like you know alien stuff that we read about and, and all kinds of things and uh, but other than that i didn't have that so shows like so weird or like for you Colchak, um that those and and chris i'm not sure what, which specifically your show would be but those really they were important they were incredibly important i think to how our the rest of our lives kind of progressed i mean for me, it's for me, it's X Files. I mean, there's only one. There's only one show. Uh, you know, I, I mean, there were smaller things. Um, uh, you know, when I was growing up, I remember uh, the uh, the Alien Autopsy Factor Fiction. Uh, my family like owned that video on VHS, <laughs> and I remember watching it and being scared senseless. Uh, watching right. it now as an adult, um, it it cracks me up for a lot of reasons, namely that everybody's playing it straight and that. Uh, Jonathan Frakes is the host, but, um, you know, for me, it was always just kind of, I don't know, like I got into the X-Files super late. I think I, I got uh, the entire show on DVD when I was like 16, maybe. And I remember just watching the show all the way through essentially in like the span of like a month and a half. And this was when it was on DVDs. So you had to take Mm -hmm. it out, swap it. Um, but, uh, it was, you know, X-Files made such a giant impression on me then, but I mean, I was already, like we've been talking about, like, I was into this stuff long before that, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's one of those things where it, it almost feels hard to, it's hard to be into this stuff later in life if you weren't into it when you were younger, like, it, it being planted in your head at an early age makes, yeah. makes it, it makes it easier to be kind of... It makes it easier for this to continue on into your adult life than the other way around. Well, you have to be able to sort of, like, be able to drop, not necessarily necessarily drop, because I think that we, the three of us on here are clearly, if you want to, like, put labels on it, we're molders over, you know, we're, we're molders, not scullies. 
but I think that we're varying degrees of that, you know, like I, I'm a believer in a lot of things, but there are certain things where I'm just like, no, probably not. And, and I think that, yes, Chris, I think if you, if you aren't inclined to stuff like this when you were younger, you're probably not going to be inclined to it as an adult because of just, you know, as adults, we've learned to filter out unexplained and, and we've learned to apply logic to unexplained. We've, we're just, we're just taught that we're trained by society to sort of get rid of that more to not get rid of, but just tone down the imagination aspects when it comes to what could be happening. I think people, um, especially in America, sort of uh, find themselves pulled into one of two directions uh, that are that are kind of uh, cultural zones, and and it, you could almost say it breaks down politically. But but in terms of belief in in anything, uh, religion or 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 anything non-material. There's the true believer, which is usually tends toward religion of some sort, mm-hmm. and and it becomes, and then that becomes a a sort of costume a person wears, where they say, I am over here on this side, and here are the things you say, and here is what I believe, and and by declaring I'm on that side, I know what I am not. And what I am not is the person on the other side, which tends to be this sort of on, on, on the far end of the spectrum, you know, the, the Michael Shermer or the Richard Dawkins, the, the, the person who says, well, I am uh, going out there and, and raising a flag for materialism and the belief that, that there really isn't anything that cannot be uh, measured by science and quantified in that way. And by wearing that costume and speaking those words, I know who my mm-hmm. quote unquote enemy is. And then you've got those two camps. And, and yet I think most people are somewhat in the middle in that, yes, they, they are fans and uh, of science and believe that science has brought us so many wonderful, amazing things that, you know, cure diseases and and allow us to live, you know, very uh, comfortable lives when applied. But on the other hand, are open to the idea that there are things that uh, are not uh, at their heart totally material and that consciousness may not just be an artifact of the mind. There might be another world, but but we we use the word might because we don't know yet. Well, we're mm-hmm. not sure. And many of us are interested in these things, but have not had a near-death experience or a transcendent experience of any sort or even a ghost experience or a UFO experience. So there's we, we, we don't have anything to hold on to to say, yes, and this is why. You know, so people look at me and they – maybe they look at you guys this way too and they're like, well, if you're even open to that stuff – that means, you know, or they'll say, well, well, so, okay, come on, Rich, do you believe in Bigfoot? And it's like, I find that question, like, really difficult to answer and at the same time annoying. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, okay, if you believe in Bigfoot, then I'm going to, if I can get you to say you believe in Bigfoot, for instance, then, then, then I can have a stance toward you. You're one of those, you know. Right. It's it's hard for me to say I believe in Bigfoot because it's hard for me to define Bigfoot. The more the more I you know 
think about this stuff and listen to people who think they've seen quote unquote Bigfoot, the more I'm less sure what the fuck Bigfoot even is. Mm -hmm. Do I think it's an actual physical race of animals that is yet to be classified uh, by uh, zoologists or is it something more like ghosts or aliens that when people see it, they have a, an emotional reaction that sounds more like they're having a UFO experience, a ghost experience, not just I saw an animal I don't typically see kind of experience. So I, I wouldn't even know what to say. The more you get into this stuff, kind of the more confusing it becomes. And it makes it more important to be able to say, hey, look, maybe, maybe not. It might be out there or an experience might be out there, but I don't know what that experience is yet. Right. Yeah. I mean, you definitely have, there, there is that sort of idea that if you believe in one thing, then, well, you have to believe in everything, right? It's like, you can't just believe, and it's like, that's, that's not true. And that's totally omitting the, that, that's omitting the fact and science part of being somebody who's interested in you know, paranormal or unexplained phenomena because, yes, there's science that you can put behind it. And that, you know, certain science dictates certain things can't, you know, more than likely can't be happening. And, you know, we, we and on other episodes that we've done where we talk more specifically about cryptids in general, there are some, you know, creatures or sightings that for me personally are very difficult to believe that would be, you know, what they're being explained as. Now, I, that doesn't mean that that person didn't see something, but, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean they also saw, you know, like a werewolf. Like, <laughs> and, and, and so much of this also is just personal aesthetics. It's just what do people respond to as human beings and what do they need to get through their lives? Uh, the notion that people who are hardcore, skeptic, atheist scientists are simply people who have studied more isn't necessarily the truth. I think no. they they may have been kids who felt very differently than I did when they were a kid, and they were drawn toward a world that could be explained. There was something about the notion that the world could be totally explained emotionally resonated with them, and and so – they were drawn to the 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 disciplines that reinforced that belief that now, that if you simply study these things, you will eventually find an answer to everything. And there's something very emotionally uh, satisfying about that. And I can understand someone being drawn, but I still think you get drawn there based on your emotions. And there are other people who are like, no, I've always felt a different way, and I'm actually more comfortable living in a world where maybe some things will always be outside the reach of man's understanding. And, and, and based on those feelings, you then veer away from the hard sciences and go in other directions. But I think it does start with human personality, I mean, almost down to the point of human aesthetics and what your, what your confirmation bias is, what, what makes you able to sleep at night more comfortably. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's I mean, a part of me, I can definitely understand with those people who who kind of want a reason for everything. I get that. I do. I am very much a OK, well, if this isn't this way or this is this way, then I need to know why. 
um, I, I get that want. And I, and I think it's very much a psychological thing, especially for me specifically. Obviously, I can't speak for everyone psychologically, but when it comes down to it, like I struggle with like uh, uh, perfectionism. It's, it's essentially... It's not obsessive compulsive disorder, it's obsessive compulsive personality disorder, which is just very, it is, it's just, it's, it's very, yeah, focused on the details and focusing, focusing on the reasoning as to why and focusing on the need for, for things to be perfect, perfect, and for things to be perfect, then I need to know, you know, why X, Y, and Z. So that's kind of where I fall, how I sort of split myself between a believer and a skeptic, because I do fall very much in a believer, especially, you know, compared to like my, my husband, I, I, I'm much more open to certain, you know, phenomenons than, than he is. And he, you know, tends to skew to the more like, you know, scientific fact based way of thinking. And, and I think that part of that is very much part of his personality, um, just needing to, to kind of compartmentalize things. So, yeah, there's, it's interesting how psychology can kind of open you up or close you off to the, you know, possibility of things beyond yourself. But I think the real question, Richard, is as someone who wrote the film, <laughs> The Mothman Prophecies, um, I, I, you know, the, the amount of research you must have done into The Mothman would make you an expert on the topic, wouldn't it? Well, that's that's the thing. Not really, because I as what was fascinating to me about the book, The Mothman Prophecies by John Keel, and it's a wonderful book and your listeners should definitely read it. It's as entertaining today as it was 50 years ago when it was published. Um, what was fascinating to me was not The Mothman. That, that was not the thing that drew me in. What was fascinating was John Keel writing about his experience of investigating The Mothman, plus about, you know, 50 other weird experiences that people were having all throughout that city, uh, Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and and how as he spent more time there trying to make sense of it, the less sense it made. Because what's great about him is he was one of those guys who you never get in a movie who sort of stood outside and went, okay, I'm going to investigate this in an intelligent way. And he set about doing that. And there were a lot of smart things he did about asking witnesses not to speak to each other and, and giving people uh, tape recorders and notebooks and telling them, if anything else happens, just write it all down, record it, do what you can right in the moment, and then don't show it to anyone but me and I'll be the clearinghouse. So if you have an experience, you know, two nights ago, and you talk to me and me only, and another person had an experience two nights ago, and they only speak to me, then I can compare these two reports and see if there's any connection. And then you can't say, oh, well, the two of you, you know, you heard his story, and then you extrapolated that, and a night later, you you added to it. You know, we, we can really figure this out. And this was, again, a long time ago when it was easier to keep people a little bit siloed off. Um, anyway... I thought that was fascinating because it didn't lead to any answers. In fact, what it led to was apparently the phenomenon beginning to focus on him. It's almost like whatever was out there began to realize, oh, there's someone here trying to figure this out. All right, mm -hmm. let, let's, let's fuck with him. And, <laughs> and, it's, 
And he is very, very open in the book about how how he uh, became destabilized in this situation and how he was aware of it and then what he tried to do to self-correct his own problems. It, it, one of the most interesting things, it didn't really find its way into the movie, was that he, he began to realize that as soon as he began to consciously or unconsciously form a theory about what was happening in Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Information would come to him to confirm that theory. Literally to the point where he would then go, okay, I am now going to begin constructing a theory about what's happening in this town that I don't really believe in, but I'm going to consciously construct another theory and see what happens. And then he would do it, and then he'd start getting information and reports that confirmed that self-invented theory. This was stuff I'd never read before. This is stuff I'd never heard of before. The way a, a an, an individual trying to remain objective as hard as they can and then begin to have experiences that undermined it at every turn to the point where he almost went crazy. And, and, and what he learned, if there was anything to learn from this experience, was you have to stop looking into the abyss. The longer you look into the abyss, the more it does look into you. Mm -hmm. And the only way to disengage yourself is to completely disengage. And and ultimately, that's what he had to do. So he doesn't deal with anything anything like like that now? Well, he passed away a few years ago, so well, specifically, okay, yes, no, he does not now. But but well, at, at a does. certain point, well, maybe he does. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, you know. Richard, are you knows? speaking for the dead now? <laughs> yes, I, am. I, am. Uh, I I've been I've my my communication with John Keel has continued beyond the grave, and I can tell you very uh, specifically that no, no. Um, but what he did, I think, what he did was, and again, this was for his own well being. Um, he developed a sort of arm's length relationship with 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 the phenomenon and with the idea of investigating the phenomenon and 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 his own personal sense of humor sort of came through at a certain point he he would go speak at various paranormal conferences or ufo meetings and he would hand out his personal business card and his personal business card says john keel not an expert on anything (laughs) <laughs> and and he actually began to piss people off because these groups that he would speak to were obviously groups of people who had uh, closely held beliefs about what these various things were, ghosts, demons, UFOs, aliens, whatever. And he simply refused to take it seriously. At a certain point, he understood that the more seriously you take it, 
you're you're heading down a cul-de-sac and and you're never going to get out of it. You you you've got to really step back and go, guys. We don't know what this stuff is. It could all be exactly the same thing, just presenting itself in different masks. Mm-hmm. We really don't know. And the and the and the more the more you try to strengthen your grip on your own personal pet explanation, uh, that way madness lies. You've really just got to step back, open your hands, and go. You know what? We don't understand a lot more than we do understand, and we've simply got to accept that. And that's how he lived out the rest of his life. Sure, he had experiences and he had opinions, but he, uh, he when I, I do not believe he was a true believer in anything when he died. He he lived by the uh, the the words of Charles Fort: uh, uh, "Belief is the enemy," uh, and, and and so try try to you know go where the evidence leads, but don't fall into the trap of belief because belief means you've arrived somewhere with without evidence mm-hmm. and and you've arrived at a philosophical stance uh, w- uh, uh, uh sort of jumping over a, f- a few uh investigatory uh steps and and uh, resist that temptation resist as much as you can did you ever get a chance to meet him while you were working on the film yeah i actually i met him uh early early on uh um a couple of times and then, uh, and then one more time while the film was being made, I wasn't uh, involved in the physical production of the film. Once I wrote the script, it was it was uh, it was out of my hands and into the hands of Mark Pellington, the very capable hands. And um, and and I think he was. I think. And here's the thing: look, the 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 movie script in the movie is very very different than what he experienced. But he was not upset about that at all. He was like, look, you know, a I'm happy that that anyone is paying attention to a book I wrote, you know, 30 years ago. Uh, B, I'm thrilled to be getting some money and some publicity at this late, late stage in my life. By then, mm-hmm. he was in his late 70s and and had, had basically fallen into general obscurity. And he also understood that nothing had to be followed uh, religiously, as it were, because he's like, look, I, I can't tell you what happened there now any more than I could when it was happening. You've 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 captured the feeling of what it was like to be gripped in that mania. So I'm not concerned that, oh, wait, no, you've got to have this exact detail and you've got to do my book word for word. By then he had he understood that that even some of the stuff he thought he understood at that time probably uh, was the result of fear and and just again being in an environment where weird things were happening to a lot of people on an almost daily basis. So so uh, he, he was not precious about the material, which was great. And so he was a great guy to be around. And and, and his again his sense of humor is what came through more than anything else. Do you know, Do you know if any, any of those, those like recordings, recordings or, or notebooks or anything that that people wrote and had their experiences with are still around? I've always wondered that, and I would have loved to have seen any firsthand material. Unfortunately, what uh, a lot of the evidence that he gathered just it it it, it was non-evidence. Like literally, mm-hmm. he would record these phone calls with with uh, 
um, disembodied entities that he would to this day, if he were alive, when I spoke to him, he said, no, no, there were voices on the phone and I was hearing them and I was recording them. But even the next day when I played the tapes, there was nothing but electronic buzz uh, where those voices were. You could hear my voice. And on the other mm-hmm. end, it was just so much, uh, you know, uh, staticky uh, uh, like noise. white noise. Yeah. The other like, in Yeah, you oh, know, there was Uh-huh. He's in the movie. Yeah, but uh but he was uh he was he did not come away with um with anything that that could be played on a radio show mm-hmm. and um and so he was as confounded as anyone else. So you know, talking about Mothman and and all this, Richard. Uh, I'm you know I'm curious because I don't think we've ever talked about this privately. Um, is there one of these you know cryptids, paranormal, and this is one of these that really piques your interest more than than anything else that you find yourself being drawn to more than say, if you had a day an afternoon to research a topic, what would the one topic be that you threw all of your research and time into? Well, at the time that I wrote Mothman Prophecies, I, w- I easily would say that EVP was my main interest mm-hmm. because that seemed the most physical. It's like, well, and the most uh, um, accessible by anybody. It's like all, all you needed was a tape recorder and some time on your hands and you might get voices. And I was almost less interested in the interpretation of the voices like, well, wait, is it saying this or is it saying that? Uh, as I was, why is there a voice? You know, and, mm-hmm. and is it a voice? Like, there, there's got to be something there. That that's the most physical sort of evidence you can get. And there's got to be a way to measure those sounds and say, yes, that is a voice. That is a word. That there there is something there. Um, so I was really curious about any kind of technological way to uh, to bridge the gap between the living and the dead. Um, I'd say nowadays what I'm m- much more interested in are uh, studies of uh, near-death experiences. Mm. I find those to be really interesting, very you know equally confounding. I, I certainly don't think it's uh, it's final proof of anything, but but it really does boil down to one of my <laughs> what what I've sort of arrived at, which is. All of these things are subjective journeys. I don't, I don't really anymore expect that there will be universal proof of anything that the world will accept. And I think, by the way, that is being borne out mm-hmm. in the culture we live in now. There is not a single thing that everyone in America could agree upon. You, you can get 10 people to look at a press conference and they'll, they'll, they'll say, oh, well, you know, you'll, you'll have vastly different interpretations. Mm-hmm. So once that becomes clear, it becomes even more clear that this stuff is subjective. The, 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 a near-death experience, an alien encounter, and that's all it's ever going to be. Right. I'm never going to change based on your experience or that guy's experience. I'll be interested. And I feel it's our job to listen to people's subjective accounts of what's occurring in their lives and take that into consideration and not dismiss it. But until it happens for me, I am an armchair detective in the world of the paranormal. And by the way, I'm okay being in that armchair 
more and more I feel like, you know what, maybe I don't want one of those experiences. Maybe I just have mm-hmm. to wait uh, until uh, this physical life is over and then I'll get whatever answers I can get then. See, I, I do agree uh, that I don't think that any, you know, as, as as a species, I don't think people are ever going to be able to. The only way that they could agree on something is if there was some kind of global takeover by some other entity. Like if that was, if we were all, exp- sort of like right now, like we are all experiencing a global, or at least right now, more of a national uh collective sort of experience with having to stay inside for the most part. Um, but even still, people are taking that as, as subjective and, you know, they're, they're, they, we can't even agree on this right now. But I think unless it was like some kind of war of the world situation where flying saucers like descended upon the globe, then I think maybe we could... Uh, find some kind of common ground but i i can't say that i don't want an experience because i still do and i mean in our first episode we kind of talked a little bit about experiences i haven't had anything that i consider like that really really you know sticks with me as a possible like yeah no that was definitely something um and i would I, i do still want that and i think that's also the horror fan in me where i was you know as a kid i latched onto scary movies and tv shows and i was always looking for the next you know scare the next subgenre you know that's crazier than the last one and so i think that's just natural a natural progression for me with this kind of stuff where it's like i am i can be very skeptical but I also really want an experience. And they also say that if you, you know, if you really want one, then it might not happen. But we'll see. Oh, exactly. Like, if you're open to it, then you're more likely to have an experience than someone who's not open to it. But then you hear the flip side. So, yeah, like, it just all comes down to that subjectivity of it. But you've never had an experience, Richard. No, I've like never not had not even experience. a little bit? No, not really. Not not anything that I, uh, no, no, I really haven't. I, you know, I, th- I mean, I think, uh, obviously, like you said, I mean, if you're not wanting one, not having one is probably the best <laughs> outcome, right. you know. Well, so, I mean, now picture it. Picture if suddenly, like, uh, next week, uh, I, I come back on your podcast and I'm like, okay, it happened. And I tell you about something that happened you know, next Tuesday. How weird would that be? I, I think people would listen to that and go, well, it's fucking Richard Haddam. He wrote the Mothman prophecies. He's been, you know, writing scary stories and he's mm-hmm. talked openly about how when he was a child, he, you know, was fascinated with Bigfoot and UFOs. So of course he has an experience. That's right. a go-to skeptical stance. Well, um, I mean, look what happened with Bob Gimlin and Roger Patterson. I mean, they were essentially told, you went looking for Bigfoot. Isn't it coincidental you found Bigfoot? Right. How, how weird. And it's like the people right. who go looking for these things, a lot of the times are the ones who see it because that's what they're going to do anyways. You wouldn't well, expect look, someone who's digging for diamonds where he thinks there might be diamonds. If he finds diamonds, people don't go, that's weird they found diamonds. You go, yeah, the guy found diamonds because he was looking for diamonds. He went digging for diamonds. I, right, imagine right. that you found the thing you were looking for. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the, the rhetorically, the skeptical stance is is easy and kind of... Uh, uh, <laughs> Well, I, I I don't want to disparage it because I think I think it's important. But but yeah, it's like you you can respond to anything. You can go well, look at all those ghost hunter shows. 
there's a million ghost hunter shows on television and none of them has ever found anything. Okay, that's all the answer you need. However, if one of those ghost hunter shows says, hey, look, we found something, then the skeptic says, oh, look, the guy who believes in ghosts and who's making a show promising ghosts suddenly finds a ghost. What a coincidence. And there's no there's no way that like shows like that and, you know, just with how technology is and how accessible it is for everyone right now and how, you know, over the years, our feelings of reality TV have all, you know, pretty much landed on it's a giant joke and everybody knows it's fake and it's all produced and the stories are written and da 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 da. So, yeah, there's there's it's it's hard to come out with like these. You know, I guess that we had on before um, James Renner, who who wrote a book um, called It Came From Ohio, and it was just all these kind of different weird experiences in the state of Ohio. And his way that he wanted to kind of like add some credibility to these stories and to his book was that he pretty much only used stories from people who are otherwise considered, you know, credible. So like cops and people in the military and medical professionals, people who have a sort of gravitas behind their and seriousness behind what they do for a living and are not prone to coming up with wild stories and embellishments. So that sort of adds a little bit of the credibility to or weight to the story, I guess, than you know, say the three of us, because of course, like you said, Richard, I mean, Chris and I have this podcast now. If we have experiences, they're gonna be like, well, yeah, of course, the people who have the scary stories podcast are gonna have scary stories. Like, <laughs> well, and it becomes totally reductive. It's like, well, the minute even a a uh, otherwise sane, respectable, believable person, the minute they claim an encounter or an experience, they automatically become no longer credible no longer respectable, no longer believable based on that simple fact. So, so you can always, I'm not, it's not, it's not even a matter of the goalpost moving. Mm -hmm. It's that the goalpost is located in a place that is, that is unreachable by the experience. You know what I mean? In other words, in other words, a, a strict materialist will say, you can uh, w- once you can uh, prove a ghost's existence to me uh, in a laboratory or by using the tools of science, that is when I will believe it. But what you're asking for is is for a thing to be proved in a way that is materially opposite to its nature. Mm-hmm. In other words, a, a non-physical experience can never be proven physically. Right. So to and, and so to say, well, until it can be proven like physically, experience. it doesn't exist. It, it, what you're saying is no non-physical things can exist. Right, and then you can introduce the well. Do you believe in God? To certain people who who but and I think that that sort of kind of brings us a little full circle and comes back a lot to psychology and varying different psychologies between people because you know. We all are inclined on this podcast. On this podcast, we've established are inclined to have you know sought out stories like this and you know explored them and gone further. People who are not inclined to that and are you know afraid or just like you know unsettled or just thrown off by by stuff like this are going to sort of 
turn to that dismissive, reductive, I need to put some kind of rationale on this thing that's happening because otherwise if I don't, I can't, I don't want to deal with that feeling of unknown. Because I think, and I think we've touched on this before, I think for people, fear of the unknown is what we all kind of share. Because especially when it comes to supernatural and paranormal stuff, because it's all looped in with death, right? Like that's, there's that whole, you know, that very real, you know, just fact of human life is that human life eventually ends. And the fact that it ends and nobody can call back and let them know what's going on, we don't know. And things like ghosts and God and poltergeists and just energy orbs, however people want to do, you know, however people want to, you know, ration it, it's, it's a belief to kind of further the notion that we as, you know, an entity don't entirely just end. And then on the other hand, you have for some people who are complete atheists, non-believers, whatever, are totally fine with the idea of just death being it. Right. And so, and so their, their stance, uh, rein, their stance is in harmony with their personal beliefs. Right. It's all reinforcing your own kind of bias. And I think that that's a lot of this again. It's, it's, it's a mix between fact and science and a, and a mix between storytelling and embellishment and why we choose to keep stories like this going on, um, particularly when it comes to paranormal and cryptids and stuff like that. Now, on the other hand, on this podcast, Richard, and we can touch on this a little bit before we kind of wrap up, but, um, are you a true crime guy? Um, you know what? I'll be honest, less now than I used to be, mm-hmm. but that may be a function again of where I am in my life with children. And, right. you know, you, you sort of, there was a point when serial killers were fascinating to me because of how, how, how scary they were and what that psychology was. And, and now I'm just like, that to me is the grim reality of the mm-hmm. world that there are that there are people uh, at, at all levels of our society we are now learning who are uh, true sociopaths mm-hmm. and who who cannot uh, uh, truly empathize with anyone other than themselves mm-hmm. and and I, I find that to be uh, uh, hello it is Ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day couldn't we just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Really frightening and depressing because mm-hmm. it, it, it actually does exist. But um, but I know, I, I mean, now, are you guys delving into true crime also? We, yeah, the, this podcast is, we were kind of, we, we touch on all, all sort of true crime, supernatural, horror culture, all that kind of, you know, loosely related topics. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that you, you bring up a good point with true crime being the, I, I personally am, I, I'm fairly into true crime. I have a, I have a crime of the day, like desk calendar right now. Um, I have a variety, I have a, a serial killer encyclopedia. I have a variety of things, but I think that, you know, t- two notes, um, one, 
the belief, the the ability to believe in something supernatural and paranormal and and non-physical, I think is a bit more, it's, it's not necessarily bad or scary or, you know, final. Serial killers and, you know, murderers, other, you know, variety of criminals, those are real. That happens. That is a very real reality. And there is nothing whimsical or possible, you know, possibly, you know, optimistic about any of it. It is, it is awful. It's final. And that's how it is. And I think that, you know, like you said, you, you, you used to be into it more than you are now. I feel the same way about, um, certain horror movies, you know, when I was a teenager and really getting into exploring all different kind of subgenres, I was always looking for the most hardcore, you know, graphic, violent, you know, just bleak, depressing sort of martyrs or irreversible or whatever kind of movie. And now as a, as, you know, an adult, as I, I still love horror movies. I watch them all the time, but I kind of, I, I veer away from those really hardcore, nobody's coming to help you, you're just going to be tortured for an hour and a half and then until you die sort of movie. I don't seek those out as much anymore. Um, I was on a show uh, about a year and a half ago uh, during a break between season one and season two of Titans. I wrote for a show called The In-Between. And the creator and the showrunner of that show was a woman named Moira Curland, who is just, I'd never worked with her before. She's amazing. Just, I mean, super smart, super funny, just, and a really wonderful person, but really into true crime. I mean, like, like we would, because mm-hmm. we would be breaking these crime stories that were being, that in the show were being aided by a psychic, but there had to be an actual crime being committed. And so we would we would reference something like, oh, I, I seem to remember there was a guy who would kill people based on and she'd go, oh, no, no, no. That guy was uh, here was his name and here's what he did. And here's how they caught him. Like she was like a living encyclopedia right. of these true crime things. And and she like literally has her own theory about who Jack the Ripper is or was <laughs> that is separate and apart from anything that's been published. But she's read so many books about it. And so we would like we would laugh and, and, and just go, God, Moira, you're so into this stuff. And I said that I felt that in my own experience, it appeared that true crime was really almost a like, you know, not not to be sexist, but it feels like it's like a like a a, a, a weird version of chiclet. Like women mm-hmm. seem to be no, overwhelmingly interested in this stuff. And she's like, yeah, because for us, it's an instruction manual. Yep. I was how not to get say. killed. <laughs> I mean, would you agree? I do. Um, as a, so one of my favorite podcasts that I, um, listen to a lot is called My Favorite Murder and it is hosted by, uh, two women and, uh, all of, you know, 95% of their fans are women and they're a hugely popular po- podcast. I mean, there's, I mean, Lifetime essentially and Oxygen are now nothing but true crime shows, a variety of things of like deadly women or, you know, a lot of it, like you said, it's it's that sort of idea of and I think a lot of people because people are like, why do you like horror movies? Like, how could you possibly like that? And especially as a woman. And I'm not, you know, I'm a pretty petite, small woman. Like, why do you like all these creepy, gooey, gross things? And I think that on some level, it is sort of like that instruction or sort of preparedness manuals, because if we look at statistics for true crime, 
more people that are getting murdered are women than than men, I think. And oh, absolutely. women are more likely to be murdered by people who are close to them, like their husbands or boyfriends or just what or, or parents, you know, fathers, whatever. So there's a lot of I mean, there's a lot of inherent danger to being a woman. And I'm not trying to get all, you know, on a on a soapbox here, but no, it's okay. It's, you can get on a soapbox. <laughs> it's a real soapbox. You know, yeah. here's, here's a, here's a, uh, a fact, uh, and figure that, that I, I still can't quite wrap my head around, but, uh, but apparently the number one cause of death for mm-hmm. a pregnant woman in America is murder. Yeah. Yep. There's so there's a lot of uh, like another kind of sort of subgenre of horror movie that I I've, I've watched quite a few things are and there's kind of like this um, pregnancy horror where babies are either like something's happening to the baby in the womb or something's happening, especially like pregnancy movies where it's the person is pregnant and there's a lot of um, statistics about women being attacked by other women for their baby. Because they oh my God. deranged and and can't have children of their own for whatever reason, and that happens a lot, um, you know, or kidnappings. And there's the same sort of thing with like the subgenre of rape revenge films, which are very, you know, that's a very sensitive, you know, sort of trigger warning topic. Um, but rape revenge films are often, you know, enjoyed by women and, you know, occasionally by women who have unfortunately experienced things like that. And it, I think, is very much just a catharsis thing where it's like this is something real that happens. But within this movie, it's just within this movie. And I'm watching this woman, you know, if I watch I Spin on Your Grave and Camille Keaton gets, you know, brutally assaulted multiple times by the same gang of men. But at the end, she murders all of them brutally. And that is, you know, for whether it's yeah. a good thing or a bad thing, it is a cathartic thing. And because you don't ever get to see that happen, you don't get that kind of, you know, what if you want to call it justice or not, you don't get that kind of retaliation to horrible crimes like that like you do in movies nobody's going out like you know you're likely if you if you're a person who was assaulted you're not going to go out and hunt them down and murder them you're not going to go out and you know vigilantism is not something necessarily to be condoned it's not something that i'm personally condoning but i can understand the catharsis behind it and if you can't have it in real life you can have it in that sort of contained box and everybody yeah. knows if you promote vigilanteism, your children will be murdered in their sleep by a man with a glove with knives on it. Yes, so. exactly. Oh, I which did not is, know that. I like <laughs> which, that is, which is why you don't promote <laughs> vigilanteism. No. You know, the other thing about true crime that you were you're talking about, obviously, with, you know, um, women have a, a, a higher likelihood of it being uh, perpetrated against them. Whenever you listen to these uh, these books or read about true crime, especially in the in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and maybe not so much in the 90s, but definitely in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it was um you know it was obviously uh, those who were more disenfranchised, right? So mm-hmm. when you have someone like Gary Ridgway, he was focusing on uh, prostitutes. But the other thing that still seems to be kind of downplayed is the um the overwhelming amount of gay men targeted by serial oh, yeah. killers. Yep. I mean, gay, gay culture, I mean, or members of the gay community in general, that's a huge sort of, I think, blind spot. I'm sure that there are probably a couple podcasts that are devoted exclusively to LGBTQ plus uh, crime, especially right now. We have a horrible 
problem of uh, crime against transgendered people. Um, that that's absolutely <laughs> horrific that's happening right now. And well, it's kind of, it, but it's it's and it's kind of hard to talk about all this without without going. Gee, what what part of our culture uh, would be attacking women, gay men, and right. transgender people? Mm-hmm. Who could it be? Mm-hmm. Huh. Well. We'll have to think on that. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's where you kind of bridge more in, into more kind of psychology. And that, or I think that's more of in a nurture sense than necessarily a nature sense where you're sort of, you know, people who are raised within cultures that are not particularly accepting to certain other types of, you know, lifestyles. Um, you get that kind of perpetuated hate or misunderstanding because it's coming down from the people that you are supposed to trust and believe in most, which is your family, your direct family members. Um, and that, yeah, that's, that's just, that's an unfortunate byproduct of, um, sustaining stupidity within your own family, essentially. But But, yeah, you know, I just, I find it, I find it really interesting that that's again another subsection mm-hmm. of this that gets less mentioned. You know, you talk about pregnant women, then you talk about you know gay men and and obviously gay prostitutes mm-hmm. and just prostitutes in general. Oh so. yeah, the the what 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 do they call them? The overwhelmingly um, the uh, oh shoot. There's a word. There's a specific phrase for oh, the less dead, which is a really unfortunate and horrific term, but it essentially means like people like homeless people or prostitutes. Um, people who, you know, are completely removed from their family and friends who don't have homes, who are, have, you know, maybe who have, yeah, forgotten. Yeah. Who are essentially maybe have some mental problems, maybe have some drug problems, maybe have whatever, maybe they just had bad luck and now they're in a shittier situation. And unfortunately, yeah, those people get really left behind when it comes to the amount of work and, um, you know, actual motivation to investigate stuff like that. I mean, you get a lot of people, you know, people who are homeless or prostitutes who come come up dead and it's essentially just chalked up to, oh, it was either drugs or their pimp killed them or somebody. And or they left. Or they left. Or they left. They just straight Which up was, left. They said, bye, yeah. I'm gone. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm with you though, Richard. You know, I really did used to be into true crime pretty heavily and there was a while there where I was into it. And I'm still into some specific um cases uh but you know for me it is kind of this this thing where thinking about it and talking about it and understanding what it is um really brings it's down uns- the <laughs> yeah it's un- it's unsettling and like it's you know it's unsettling yeah. with face um yeah and it's and it's something it's weird <laughs> as as a writer and a writer of you know popular media it, the, the way certain things affect you. I mean, Silence of the Lambs mm-hmm. changed everything uh, w- because it was so popular and so well done. It's such a such a really well crafted piece of genre fiction and then genre filmmaking. But it but it from from where I was standing, getting into you know professional screenwriting at that time, it affected everything because then that was the genre that everyone wanted. Uh, you know, a piece of that. I mean, for the next 10 to 20 years, even, even now, uh, the, that genre of the serial killer, the pattern killer became, uh, a really attractive way to tell a story. 
Mm-hmm. And it was something that people definitely wanted to see. And we still get that. I mean, the shows that Dick Wolf does and all the CSI and NCIS shows and now true crime and various things like that. There, there is still this fascination with with that. But but, you know, as as there are trends, you become as a writer, a victim. I mean, the number of of bad movies that the sixth sense, which was a beautiful yeah. movie. But the number of really shitty movies it led to, including by the writer and director of The Sixth Sense, mm-hmm. where where that trend of, well, we need a story that has a giant twist at the end that that is this giant thing that's been held back that is then revealed to the audience, which like was seven. Which, and- yeah. And, and, and by the way, that 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 isn't quite exactly what The Sixth Sense did, but, but right. that is what everyone thought it did. It led to trends where you're like, oh, okay, this is what we've got to do. But, but anyway, going back to the serial killer thing, I remember being perfectly happy that that was in vogue in the late 90s. But then even by the early 2000s, when I was working on shows that were about serial killers and stuff, when you spend your entire day talking about, okay, well, but I mean, does, does he chop the woman? Is this guy a guy who chops <laughs> the woman's head off? He only does it when she's still alive. No, no, he does it when they're dead. Oh, I know, they're switching heads. That's what it is. And you're just like, (laughs) what the fuck are we talking about all day? You'd go home feeling like shit, and yet there were always a few people on staff who didn't go home feeling like shit because for whatever reason, (laughs) they loved that. That that was – and I'm not saying they were you know bad people or they Mm -hmm. were actually serial killers. But for whatever reason, this did not bother them at all. Right. And and then you just self-select out of that. It's like, you know what? I can't do it. I'm not I, you know, that's not a that's not a world I can be in every day. Mm-hmm. And then people go, yeah, but now you're in a world where there's fucking monsters killing people. Yeah, but the monsters aren't real. <laughs> At least they're not tangibly real. Yeah, they're not. And I think, you know, going again and we, we could talk about this particular topic for hours. But, you know, it, Serial killers and true crime, that's something that's human, and that's something that I think, you know, probably we're interested in it because, we, you know, you, Chris, I, not, we, we are not murderers. We could not murder someone. We, there's no way that, like, that, that couldn't happen. But that's a pretty big, then you look a pretty at big somebody, assumption there, Jess. Well, I would like to think, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> but, uh, so you, we have that, but then you look at somebody... Like your Ted Bundy or your Jeffrey Dahmer, who are on one hand, you have Mr. Handsome Young Republican, and on the other hand, you have quiet, shy, you know, reserved kid. And both of them ended up being horrific serial killers. And it's something that I think people just look at these people and go, well, what separates me from that? How, what am I, you know, what specifically is different that makes them do that? And me not. And I think that that's that's sort of and that's sort of what, you know, true crime and forensic and, you know, analysts have been trying to come up with definitively is what, you know, causes a serial killer. Is it nature? Is it nurture? Is it something that's like, you know, is it a genetic predisposition? Is it a genetic, you know, is it a, a brain misfiring, a chemical misfiring? What is it? Um, and I think that that is, that's sort of the mystery behind true crime, the thing that, the unanswerable sort of things behind true crime. Now, I will say that my specific interest in true crime over the years have, uh, leaned now are more the, uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by sort of disappearances, 
Um, because I think that that kind of goes along the with sort of paranormal stuff where it's like, well, I don't know for sure something terrible happened to them. <laughs> they could have just, you know, gone off and started a new life or maybe I, I don't know. But, yeah, I do find disappearances very fascinating. So are you familiar with the uh, whole missing 411 series? Yeah. Mm-hmm. OK, you would have to. That that is sort of the. Uh, the ultimate uh, exploration of that. Yeah. And I, I bought uh, at great expense all of those books and then started reading the first one and got about four pages in and then went, oh, wait a second. I can't read any of this. I don't like this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to read about people who go somewhere and are never seen again. Mm-hmm. I, I'm like, oh, this, this is truly nightmarish in a way that I didn't quite understand. And so they sit on the shelf and I'm like, yep, those are books I'm never going to read. I'll listen to a podcast. <laughs> I'll listen to a radio thing. But I can't really spend a ton of time right. thinking about people who go on a hike and then one of them just disappears because they stepped you know, off the trail for you know, 30 seconds. Right. Yeah. There's a there's a reason people reach reach out to Richard to talk to Richard. I didn't know that that was a case. Richard and I just kind of organically became friends, but apparently people like listening to Richard talk about this kind of stuff. So. <laughs> well, God, I hope so. God, the money I'm making doing these podcasts, let me tell you. Oh yeah, just, you fill up a shoebox with all those quarters and dimes. <laughs> all those fifty uh, percent off coupons for the local car wash. Come on, <laughs> yeah, right. So, so Richard, um, when when we're not talking to you, can people find you places? Yes, people can uh, m- most quickly and readily find me on Twitter. And if you reach out to me on Twitter, I will reach back. Uh, and I am really easy to find. It's just my name, Richard Haddam at Richard Haddam. And uh, and you'll you'll find that I talk about uh, sometimes uh, working on TV shows, but mostly I'm just uh, talking about weird stuff or the Rockford Files or uh, a picture of my dog. So uh, there you go. Or you'll find on Twitter pictures of Richard preparing for self-isolation by buying boxes full of alcohol. Uh, Yeah. Oh, that's another good one. Yeah. Yeah. That's gotten me through. Hey, whatever gets you through, man. Exactly. Because you know what? Those stores are still essential, and uh, they should be. So uh, as for uh, Jess, where can find, where can people find you? People can find me on Twitter at writer Jess Byard. Uh, you can find me twice a month on your podcast, Chris, the Culture Cast, where we're chatting about movies every month, a different theme. Uh, you can find us on, you can find both Chris and I over on our other podcast, The One Season Show, where we talk about television shows that uh, only lasted one season. So we got a few of those up. You can check that out. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much it. What about you, Chris? And as for myself, as always, just follow me on Twitter. That's the easiest place. Like Richard said, if you want to reach out to me on there, casualty underscore Chris, that's the easiest spot to get a hold of me. Follow the podcast on Twitter, scary stories, WT. We're also on Instagram at scary underscore stories, underscore. We underscore tell because Instagram is a pain in the ass when it comes to giving yourself a name. Scary stories. We tell.com is also where you can find us. And as always, no mystery is closed to an open mind.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.